soul. We believe you are God and in control. Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Brand, a ministry of Worship Generation Church located in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. We believe in the power of the gospel. We believe you can transform every soul. We believe you're the Savior. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. Let the nations be glad, all his saints rejoice. Verse 26, now as they, the religious leaders, led him, Jesus, away, they lay hold of a certain man, Simon the Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning them, said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Tonight, as we go through our portion of text in chapter 23, we're going to see three statements from Jesus tonight, and this is the first of them. And it's the context of the journey to Golgotha, which is place of the skull, also referred to as Calvary. So Jesus is moving out of Jerusalem, the the city central, and he's en route to be crucified publicly and on the outskirts of the city at the place of Golgotha, Golgotha, the place of the skull, along with two other condemned criminals. There's three of them. And there's a number of people, of course, the city's in an uproar. Later on, the two Disciples would say to Jesus, who was resurrected, are you the only one that doesn't know the events that have happened in Jerusalem? They were, the events of this day were so far reaching for every citizen and every person there. And remember for the Jewish feast that all the Jewish men were required by the Old Testament law to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. So the city would swell at three, four times its normal size as all the Jewish people from the north, Galilee, from the south, the Judean wilderness, would come back to Jerusalem to keep the feast. We see in the book of Acts where Paul would be doing his journeys and he would set a timeline for what he was doing and when he was doing it so he could be in Jerusalem for the feast. So it was very much a part of the culture. Like everyone wants to be home for Thanksgiving or home for Christmas in the United States, a similar type of concept. So the city is swelled and this event is unfolding and this is what's happening. So first we get Simon the Cyrenian. He's, Cyrene is North Africa, modern Libya. And it's amazing. Just, we got to pause for a minute and think about this guy. He's just there And he's compelled to carry the cross of Christ. For all the human beings that have ever lived in the human experience since the dawn of creation with Adam as the head of our race, this man was conceived in his mother's womb, raised in a country with a language and a dialect and customs to be recorded in the Bible three times as the man who carried Jesus' cross. It's, It's worth thinking about because Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross. But he's the only man that carried Jesus' cross. What an amazing irony in the human experience. In Mark's account, we're told he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, which implies a personal understanding of those two men 
in the early church. So it's very possible that this man came to faith through Christ and or his children because that connection of his children being mentioned as known entities with no explanation in Mark's gospel sheds more light on this. But on this day, his life was forever changed, Simon the Cyrenian, and he carried the cross. Now, no words of Jesus to him. There's no record of uh, dialogue. But one can only imagine, we've reflected the last few weeks, what the look of Jesus looked like when he looked at Peter, when Peter denied him the third time and the rooster crowed. Because it says Peter and Jesus had eye contact, and Peter wept and, and fled. Then we talked about the eye contact of Jesus and Herod the Tetrarch. When Jesus refused to do anything for Herod at that little show of trial, whatever that we saw last week, Jesus didn't say one word to him. So you think of the eye contact between Jesus and Herod the Tetrarch, bearing in mind that Herod beheaded John the Baptist, and and Jesus actually referred to Herod as a fox, like a cunning, crafty man. And the only sign he said he'd ever give Herod is that on the third day he would rise from the grave. Jesus. No words. We have no words about what it would have been like when Barabbas was released and Jesus was taken. There's probably eye contact of some sort. And we talk about Barabbas is like all of us. Jesus is condemned in our place, and us who are condemned, we're released like Barabbas. So I wonder about the eye contact there. But how about the eye contact here? Jesus is so bloodied and beaten for our sins. We're told that his face was unrecognizable by the prophetic scriptures in the book of Isaiah. And there, with this type of a beating so severe, a mob beating, Simon's carrying his cross. And you just can't help but think, wow, like what that would have been like, the eye contact, or if words were even expressed. Carrying the cross for a condemned man who's the only sinless man that ever lived apart from Adam created in sinless perfection before his fall. It's an amazing thing to think about. And then the women. The women are mourning. They're grieving. Women are are. are by disposition, tend to be more sensitive, especially spiritually sensitive. We see that even in the resurrection. The women were all there first before the men, um, and Jesus appeared to Mary and so on and so forth after his resurrection. The women are sensing the magnitude of these events, and we read what Jesus says to them. So the first application you want to think about tonight is what Jesus, on the road to Calvary, what he said to the women, the daughters of Jerusalem. He said, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And he said, the days are coming. Would be better if you had never had children. Now, if I said that, or if any famous man said that, or a politician, or people who lived in countries that went through great uh, oppression, uh, the Soviet Union in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, or Eastern Europe, or anything, you know, Cambodia under the Camarouge, or Germany and the rise of Hitler and Nazism and fascism under them, like, if, if we said that, you might say, well, yeah, it would have been better like, to not have children and have them be the Nazi youth or something and walk around in brown shirts which, or be indoctrinated that way or like the communists did in China with an entire generation so that when Brother Andrew got there at the Bibles, they just mocked him because they'd been so given over to the state. So we might say in a human experience like that, but this isn't me talking or any politician or any person of history other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of the Jews by which he's being condemned for claiming to be God. And Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, it is as you say. And we talked about it in great detail last week. That this king of the Jews says to the women, the mothers of the daughters of Jerusalem, 
It would be better if you never had children. That is a very, very sobering thought. So let's think about it for a minute. Because it's a disposition of women to, to have children. It's, it's in the, the paternal, maternal nature to have children. And it would be better if you never did. Jesus said this to this generation. Now, we know when he talked about the temple in Matthew 24 and other places that Jerusalem would be destroyed and not one stone would be left upon another when Jerusalem would be destroyed. This generation would be judged for their rejection of Jesus Christ and the religious leaders shortly before this when Pilate said, what are you guys doing? What are you thinking? And they said, Pilate said, I'm innocent of the blood of this man. And what did, the, what did those religious leaders say on behalf of the nation? His blood be upon us and our children. And it was. It was. Jesus pronounced judgment on this generation for their unbelief. Josephus, one of the most famous historians, the Jewish historian, records in great detail the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel itself from 66 to 70 AD, where they just basically burned it to the ground and leveled the city, took close to a million people in the captivity to be dispersed for almost two millenniums, almost 2,000 years, and considered over 200,000 killed in the sieges of in the siege of Jerusalem that by the time they broke the siege that's where one stone was not left upon another the temple they just raised the city the Romans did Titus and the 12th Roman legion before Titus became uh, Caesar shortly thereafter it was his great conquest that preceded him becoming a Caesar and the god of Rome little g if you will it came upon them so there's an interesting application as we think about this And we need to pause. We're moving toward the cross, but this is worthy of contemplation just for a minute. How far-reaching our unbelief can be, not just for ourselves, but the people around us that we love and care about. Unbelief is the sin that keeps us from the kingdom of God. It is unbelief in Jesus Christ. It is the rejection of Jesus Christ that will keep us from heaven because we are already condemned. For in Adam all sin and all die. And when Jesus was teaching in John chapter 3, he said that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. We are born in sin, and that sin separates us from God. And the wage of sin is death, physical, spiritual, eternal. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. But the wrath of God abideth upon him, we are told in the New Testament. So in understanding that Jesus, the world is already condemned. So when these religious leaders rejected Christ, which we went in great detail last week, they failed in their position as religious leaders for the people to recognize their king and their promised Messiah of the scriptures. But even worse than their personal failure, it had a far-reaching effect for all those underneath them. It affected the entire nation. And they most certainly saw the words come to pass, or their children did, that his blood be upon us and upon our children, which is the opposite of what Paul the Apostle said to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts. He said, I've not ceased to declare to you all of God's word, and therefore I'm innocent of the blood of all men. In the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, God said, he said, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they would turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in him because God wants to forgive them and restore him in a relationship to himself. And he said to Ezekiel, 
you proclaim my truth to the people, and whether they believe it or not is between them and me, but their blood is upon you if you don't. But if you do, it's upon them. This idea of accountability of the blood is very interesting because we're about to get Jesus on the cross with the blood of the Savior shed for our sins. But the sin of unbelief is the sin that keeps us from heaven. To reject Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And so given over these religious leaders that even in the book of Acts, after the church was established, Peter and John and the other apostles preaching, where they declared there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. It was under the context that these same men were saying, you can say anything you want to say, but do not say the name of Jesus for your intent on bringing this man's blood upon us. Ladies and gentlemen of worship generation, we are very much accountable for our personal decisions concerning the person, the character, the work, and the promises of Jesus Christ. Not because we attend a Bible teaching church, but because we are human beings created in God's image to know him who gave his son that we might know him through faith in his son. Because God so loved the world, he gave his son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The accountability is on everybody, on 8 billion plus people on this planet, on the 350,000 people step into eternity today. The accountability of Christ is there for them. And we're moved with compassion and empathy and urgency to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a perishing world in the authority of Jesus Christ. But what we do with Jesus personally and decisions we make in rebellion to or obedience to Jesus are so far-reaching on our personal lives and the lives of people we love and care about. And we see that here. Jesus said, the day is coming. He said, if this is what you do when, the, when it's green, can you imagine what you're going to do when it's desert? If this is what you do with revelation in the fullest extension that God has ever given humanity, if this is what happens, what are you going to do when there's no revelation? Or as it says in the Old Testament, there is a famine of the word of God. If you don't respond to grace in the greenest of times, how are you going to handle wrath in the brownest of times? Our decisions are very far-reaching, not just for our own lives, but how they impact other lives. Watching the Billy Graham movie on Netflix the other night, I was just completely, uh, I just got to watch it over and over just to digest it. Basically, they say, if you've seen, haven't seen the movie, basically, they give a strong case that Billy Graham saved the planet. I'm just cutting you the quick. And you say, how? I really... Well, he preached to more people than anyone else, but Billy Graham was instrumental in removing segregation in the South and the reconcile of racism or removal of racism in our country on a spiritual level. Good friends with Martin Luther King Jr., so on and so forth. He was instrumental in bringing down the Iron Curtain and the Soviet bloc through his preaching behind the Iron Curtain. And he was instrumental in ministering to all of our presidents. He was instrumental in bringing the country through 9-11 and the healing after 9-11. And you watch this movie and you think, my goodness, this is true. But what the most, the coolest thing about the movie is that the faith that Billy Graham received from his parents, and they have his mom in the movie, what Ruth Bell received from her parents as a daughter of missionaries in China, and what the two of them did together as a husband and a wife in 
raising a family together in the ministry that she supported her husband in and he supported her in the team that they were and the differences of their personality and you see the legacy of what they received from their parents of faith and the children that they have and they're all their parents from Franklin and Gigi and the rest of them and Anne Graham Lotz and just the fruit and then there's the grandson who's a pastor and you just see the, the blessings that come with faith in contrast to what we see here, the consequences of unbelief on the next generation. What are you saying, Pastor Joy? I'm saying choose carefully for your own life and consider well how far-reaching that will be for the life of the person you love that you commit your life to and the children you have together and your children's children. Because blessed is the man who walks in the Lord and delights himself in the Lord. Blessed is the man and the woman who wake up and talk about the Lord as they go in the field. And when you come home to their house, it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because on that woman, on that man, on their children and their children's children and their descendants is the inheritance and the estate of the righteous, faith. And one generation will proclaim your praises to the next. And while Jerusalem went down in 70 AD, the church continued to rise up as the gospel went forth in a Roman world by people who were all in with Jesus Christ. What a sober warning of consequence because what Jesus pronounces here is judgment upon that generation. And we're going to see judgment on the cross. We read on. Now, we pick it up. Think wisely what your choices are. And I say that to myself. Verse 32. There were also two other criminals led within to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they were crucified, him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. But the people stood on. Um, looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Wow. So, we get Jesus to Calvary. And the Romans drive those spikes. Those nails are spikes. You know, they look like railroad spikes, but they're more sharp and not quite as thick. But, you know, just the sheer pain of what that would, would be like is just hard to wrap our mind around. You know, we all were designed to feel pain. Feeling pain is how God's designed our bodies, to feel pain, to recognize something like, oh, the burner's on, my hand's burning. Like, we're designed that way. And, and pain is painful, right? And, and um we might have different pains. Appendicitis would be very painful. Passing stones is very painful, as I understand it from people who have done so. Having children is extremely painful. Being an eyewitness to my children being born in the world, but not knowing the pain firsthand. There are things in life that are very painful. They hurt. Things hurt. You, 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 you want a painkiller. Like, you want something to take the pain away. There's a rawness to extreme pain, like this type of pain. When my dad was wounded in Vietnam, he was shot in a helicopter, a surface-to-air uh, small arms fire. He had a bulletproof vest on. But he said even with that bulletproof vest on, it was the most painful thing he ever experienced in his life. And it was like he said it was like he got kicked by a horse. It happened so fast, and he had never experienced anything like that. He's in a, a Huey, and the 50, all of a sudden he heard the gunner start firing the 55 caliber on the helicopter. And then right as he's like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? And then, bam, he was hit. And to this day, he'll tell you, you visit him at 89 years of age. It was the most painful thing in his life. 
Very few of us can relate to the pain of having nails driven through our hands. And yet that's the pain Jesus took along with the criminals. But for the criminals, it was their just pain. Jesus taking that pain and feeling it physically as the Son of God and the Son of Man, it was our pain. That nail, those nails were for us because the wages of sin is death. And that's what our sin is. And we talked about this last week, that with God, there's perfection and there's anything less than that. And only God is perfect. And only Jesus Christ lived the perfect sinless life. All we like sheep have gone astray. Our good works is filthy rags before the Lord. There's none righteous, no, not one. And when God's Ten Commandments are laid open, it tells us in Romans 3.20, if you're looking at the Ten Commandments, and Jesus taught that the Ten Commandments are, are lived out or broken in the heart, he said, all, all mouths are silenced before the law of God. For by the deeds of the law, nobody can be justified in God's presence. We are all guilty. So that, that punishment Jesus has taken there, he's taken for us, and he's taken in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Because when they cast the lots for his garment, that's one of many verses that we know from the Old Testament, prophetically speaking, of what would happen when Jesus was on the cross. Most specifically, the prophecies in Psalm 22 that King David wrote a thousand years before Christ came into the world, describing in detail the view of the cross of Jesus being on the cross, as if he's in the first person of it, describing something that had not yet been invented yet, the perspective from the cross of crucifixion. It's amazing details. So Jesus going to the cross is for our sins, not his, and it's in fulfillment of scriptures, many scriptures, and of course his life is the fulfillment of hundreds of scriptures, and God said about the fulfillment of prophecy, he said, put me to the test. I tell you things before they happen, that's how you know I'm the Lord. Put me to the test. I'll tell you how Tyre is going to be destroyed in Lebanon before it's destroyed, what's going to happen to the city after it's destroyed. I'll tell you this and I'll tell you that. He declares himself God outside of the, the realm of time by revealing to us things in time before they happen in time because he's outside of time, including hundreds of details concerning Jesus. But the whole focal point of everything Jesus did isn't so much his teaching or the compassion or how he reveals the Father's heart to humanity, but the real apex of everything is that he's a sinless Lamb of God, which we were singing earlier, going to the cross for our sins, that he's the acceptable sacrifice in our place. So the focal point of all prophecies of Jesus are on his death on the cross in our place and his resurrection in fulfillment of the promises that he himself said he'd rise from the grave and the Old Testament declared that he as a holy one would not undergo corruption in the grave, literal corruption physically. So there on the cross... As the leaders are mocking him, the people are sneering at him, sneering at him, the soldiers are mocking him. They're mocking him as being king of the Jews. They're blaspheming him. Above his head is the charges of the crime. Now, we know when people are booked in the United States, so sometimes they'll hold something, and you might have information what they did, you know. And some people, when they get booked, they kind of like, they, they laugh. Some people are ashamed, you know. You just get different things that different people get. Well, his crime king of the Jews. But you see, the religious leaders went to Pilate and said, don't say that. Say he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, it is what it is. Get out of here. You know, you've about enough of those guys. It is what it is. Three languages. We talked about this last week. I mentioned when you go to Kaiser on MacArthur and um, uh, Harbor there where we go, there's basically three languages, right? It's English, Spanish, and Vietnamese. So we're, in our culture, we're very trained. A lot of dual languages, like a lot of the buses have Spanish and English, and, 
and you naturally pick up lang another language if you live with two different languages, you should. I'm sure most of us are more adept at Spanish now than we were 10 years ago, I would think, just by just being aware of a whole other language. If you live in Europe, most Europeans speak English, Italian, French, or German, or something like that. You know, that's just how it works. So in three languages, so there's no misunderstanding, he is king of the Jews, the one that was promised in the Old Testament. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Now he's the king of kings in his second coming, but he's king of the Jews in his first coming. He's the fulfillment of their being set aside as a nation. God said to Abraham 2,000 years before this, the head of the Jewish nation, in your seed, in your offspring, all nations will be blessed. And that seed, capital S, is Jesus Christ who came and died for the world. God so loved the world. We read in Revelation that in the throne room of God in eternity, there's people representing every tongue, tribe, and nation before his throne, praising his name and his glory. Faith in Jesus Christ is a universal faith for all dialects, for all ethnicities. Whatever mixture you can get in your ethnic ancestry and genealogy, it's there in heaven for the kingdom of God. God, God just loves humanity. Humanity divides, sin divides. God loves humanity. God unifies, God revives, God renews, God restores. And that's what this is about, the, the restoration for humanity through his son. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Brandt. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And also follow Pastor Joey on Instagram under the tag name at Joey Baran. Thanks for listening and God bless. Not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the one I love. Not ashamed, not ashamed.